I have given a name to my pain. It was a place between places, a crossroad of all things possible and impossible. With no bounds or borders, the abstract plane would have been a swirl of shapeless chaos if not for the hulking, singular, monumental shape of the tree at its centre, Edisel, the world tree of yore, nexus of not only the nine realms of the Norse epics, but all places and times, all possible worlds, stands in the centre of the abstract plane, where the human imagination takes shape. It should be no great surprise, then, to see two characters from very different worlds of human imagination encounter each other in a place such as this. Even the strongest rodent of all time, Mighty Mouse, a.k.a. Eddie Crum, and the Clown Prince of Crime himself, the Joker, a.k.a. Ben Watkins. Stunned and confused, Mighty Mouse comes tumbling through one of the gates, coming to a stop flat on his face in an undignified heap. He hears a laugh from nearby, but such a laugh as he had never heard before, even from the most wicked of his cat foes. He shoots into the air to look the one who laughs in the eye. The gaze that meets his comes from the face of a very pale man with lips stretched in a distorted, maniacal grin. His green hair and white teeth gleam brightly in the strange, omnipresent lighting of the abstract plane as he keeps giggling like he's on the verge of hysteria. Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't just wait a minute! A super mouse? Here? In the world tree? This is too much! He throws back his head in another fit of cackling. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me! You're the one I'm here to debate? The one who's supposed to defend atheism? Come on, Thales, you can't be serious! Respect the tree, he says. You go nuts, the Joker grumbles. Excuse me, I demand to know what's going on! Mighty Mouse shouts. And so you shall, good sir, and so you shall, said Thales, amid another cackle from the Joker. It's quite simple. The Joker is here to defend theism, and you are here to defend atheism. And go! No, hold on, Mighty Mouse cried out. That doesn't explain any... And that's as far as he got before a gloved fist came crashing into him, sending him tumbling down the path atop the giant branch. Mighty Mouse has weathered harder blows before, but that had been uncalled for. Now I don't know what this is all about, Mr. Clown, but I will teach you some manners and defend atheism before I find out. So welcome everybody uh, to a devil, devil's advocate debate. Uh, we've got Benjamin Blake Speed Watkins and Eddie from Brute Facts. We'll be doing a devil's advocate debate here where if you've read Hume, Hume's dialogues, uh, we've got Ben will be sort of channeling the spirit of Cleanthes. And I believe Eddie, you'll be channeling the spirit of Philo uh, in sort of this uh discussion that we're going to have and so 
rules are pretty straightforward. Nothing below the belt. Um, respect the time, you know, so if the timer goes off, you can finish your sentence, but uh, try to um, uh, keep it close to the, the time that we're given. And uh, yeah, but I think it's going to go well. So the format will be, we'll have 10 minute openings about, then five minute rebuttal. Uh, and then we'll go to a 15-minute discussion, uh, open discussion, and then we'll do about a 15-minute uh, reflection at the very end. So who, um, I believe, uh, Ben, you're, we'll have you start. It'll be the, okay. the start here. And so I'm going to put 10 minutes on the clock. And as soon as you start, I will hit, I will start the time. Okay. Can everyone see my slide? Yep. You're good to go. Okay, so I take the central question of tonight's discussion to be, does God exist? Um, this is a fundamental question in the philosophy of religion, but before I lay out any arguments, um, we must first be clear about the concept of God, or what we mean by the term God. So for tonight's discussion, I'll be using the common Western conception of monotheism, or what's known as perfect being theism. According to this view, God is a singular, perfect, and personal being always worthy of our worship. God has the essential divine properties of unlimited power and freedom. This concept has been expressed in phrases like a being that none greater can be conceived, the greatest possible being, and a maximally great being. God is the deepest metaphysical fact about existence and the deepest good realizable by finite creatures. He is the creator and sustainer of the natural world, but is also distinct from it. Someone in whom we could have an eternally meaningful relationship with, and is the central divinity described in Christian, Islamic, and Jewish traditions. So we'll let theism be the claim a god of this sort exists, and that's the claim I will be attempting to defend here tonight. So let me first say something about inductive arguments in general. So Richard Swinburne helpfully distinguishes between two types of inductive arguments. The first type is a C-inductive argument. And so the idea here is that some piece of evidence, um, given some piece of evidence in our background data, our hypothesis is more probable um, if it is more probable than if it was initially with that before we saw the evidence on just our background evidence alone. A p-inductive argument claims that um, some hypothesis is more probable given some evidence in our background data. If it's more probable than um, its negation and that same evidence in our background data. And so um, I want to give two inductive arguments tonight um, that I think will add up to a good p-inductive argument. So the idea that theism will be more probable than not. So the first argument that I'm going to lay out is a cosmological argument. And so it starts with the observation that there's a complex universe rather than nothing at all. And I want to claim that theism has a higher prior probability than any other competing hypothesis because it is simpler. Um, and I also want to say that a complex universe is more likely given theism than not theism. And so why do I think this? So Trent Doherty puts it this way. Um, theism admits one brute fact. 
in conjunction with necessary truths about value. Theism's brute fact is the existence of a person with two properties, knowledge and power, held in the simplest way prop in the simplest possible way, zero limitation. The explanation of every contingent truth is a function of the goodness of the corresponding state of affairs. If having a good deal of chance in that world is best, then that world will be expected to have a good deal of chance. So if one applies a method of assessing the complexity of the physical universe to assessing the complexity of the theistic hypothesis, theism turns out to be a very simple hypothesis indeed. Naturalism lacks this kind of explanatory simplicity and systemacy. There will be quite a number of brute facts. A brute fact the existence of contingent beings, the existence of a number of laws, the many particular parameters of those laws, and so on. Counting up the number of brute facts in naturalism by the same method used earlier will be difficult, but it seems that inevitably it postulates more than one brute existent with only two properties held in the simplest way. So with this co uh, cosmological argument on the table, I want to turn to Bayes' theorem. And so if you look on the screen, Bayes' theorem will tell us whether or not we have a good p-inductive argument, assuming that it's greater than 0.5, this value right here. But how do we know this value is greater than 0.5? Well, we don't really know just yet, because these numbers could, you know, people could have different values for these numbers. But this bolded figure here is both a necessary and sufficient condition for a good c-inductive argument. So our cosmological argument to this point, where we might not be confident that it's a good p-inductive argument, but it's at least a good c-inductive argument. So let me turn now to the teleological argument, or what's often called the design argument. So Hume, using Cleanthes as his mouthpiece, puts the design argument like this. Look around the world. Contemplate the whole and every part of it. You will find it to be nothing but one great machine, subdivided into an infinite number of lesser machines, which again admit of subdivisions to a degree beyond what human senses and faculties can trace and explain. All these various machines, and even their most minute parts, are adjusted to each other with an accuracy which ravishes into admiration all men who have ever contemplated them. The curious adapting of means to ends throughout all nature resembles exactly, though it much exceeds, the productions of human contrivance, of human design, thought, wisdom, and intelligence. Since, therefore, the effects resemble each other, we are led to infer by all rules of analogy that the causes also resemble, and that the author of nature is somewhat similar to the mind of man, though possessed of much larger faculties proportioned to the grandeur of the work, which he, God, is the best explanation of the order and purpose that we observe. So I want to argue, still arguing the same claim of simplicity that I made in my cosmological argument, but I want to argue that a moral arena is more likely given theism than not theism. And so the idea here is that natural laws are ordered such as to actualize a moral arena consisting of moral agents with moral knowledge that can interact with one another in morally significant ways. So this brings me to my, conclu my conclusion. The combination of both my cosmological argument and my teleological, uh, teleological argument together form what I take is almost certainly a good p-inductive argument. And so we can do this by using our con the observation of a complex universe and the conclusion from our previous cosmological argument in the background data of our teleological argument and come to what I think is 
a plausible inductive argument for what I'm calling theism. So I'll go ahead and stop there. Excellent. Yeah, you did it with uh, two minutes and 50 seconds left. Very nice. So that was uh, Ben from Real Atheology arguing on behalf of the existence of God in our Devil's Advocate debate. And now Eddie will be taking up the uh, opposite position. Let me just start the time over here. And Eddie, uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. And when you start, I will start the timer. Oh, I think you're muted or something. Yeah, there we go. I had it there muted on my end. Rookie well, mistake. All right. <laughs> all right go Thank ahead you, Ben. Thank you so much. I, I love Bayes. Um, I wish I had more time to analyze it so I could find all the problems we have there. But we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get back to that. So... <clears throat> Simply, what I mean by God, uh, it's pretty much the same along the lines of being. I'm just going to simplify it and say the God of classical theism and monotheism. Um, and what I mean by that is a perfect, personal, ultimate being. Um, in other words, an ultimate, perfect person. Uh, I will present two arguments that I think will clearly show that God at least as defined and understood by classical theists and monotheists, is very unlikely to exist. The first one uh, is the divine hidden, divine hiddenness, and it'll be in the form of Schellenberg's uh, divine hiddenness argument. So the argument goes, uh, premise one, if non-resistant non-belief exists, then probably God does not exist. Premise two, non-resistant non-belief probably exists conclusion therefore god probably does not exist and of course this is going to be an inductive argument because it's based on probability um and what i mean by non-resistant non-belief as it's laid out by jl schellenberg is uh, one it is someone who is not resisting god two capable of a meaningful, conscious relationship with God, and three, yet does not believe God exists. If God is perfect and ultimate, God would ensure there are no non-resistant non-believers. This follows as a logical necessity from God being an ultimate, perfect person. Since a perfect personal God would be perfect in love, any creatures that are that are created that are personal would necessarily be created as an expression of that love and towards the end of loving and being loved by God. There's your teleology, Dan. Uh, in other words, God would create persons for the purpose of engaging in a positively meaningful conscious relationship. The second part is the problem of evil, which many people are aware of. Uh, and this one goes as premise one, intense suffering exists and could be prevented by an omni being without losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. Premise two, an all good omni God would prevent intense suffering. It could unless it could not do so without posing some greater good or permitting some evil 
equally bad or worse. Conclusion, therefore, an omnipotent, omniscient, holy good God does not exist. And what I mean by this is an omni-God that is all-loving would prevent gratuitous evil if it could. Examples of gratuitous evil would be such as human tragedies. Uh, when the uh, innocent um, man or woman is attacked and maimed and robbed uh, and left suffering, sometimes hours on end, days on end in the hospital before ultimately dying. Then we have animal suffering, such as a forest fire, you know, that, that um, it consumes the entire forest and animals are, some are literally burnt uh, to death. They sit there burning in agony on fire until they ultimately die. Usually the responses that are typical to the problem of evil are either something as skeptical theism or some kind of theodicy. And skeptical theism being the, uh, we may not be in an epistemic position to see or understand the greater good that could come from these things. Um, but the problem with skeptical theism is ultimately it leads to skepticism about God or what we can know about God at all. And if Ben chooses this route, we can discuss that a bit further. Theodicies, uh, one of the main problems immediately with theodicies is it can account for animal suffering. Um, we can deal with that if, if that one comes up. And not only that, both of them seem to commit the fallacy of possibility, or also known as appeal to probability. It's possible, therefore it's true, or it's probably true, therefore it's true. Possibility does not correlate with probability, and mere probability does not correlate with being true, nor any kind of certainty, speaking of epistemic certainty. So given these two arguments, the conclusion would be, with divine hiddenness, there doesn't seem any way to determine God exists with any kind of epistemic certainty or a high credence. Given the problem of evil, one seems to be more justified epistemically or have a higher credence that God actually does not exist. And I'll yield whatever time's left. All right, very nice. Uh, so that was, again, Eddie uh, from Brute Facts taking up the position that God probably doesn't exist in our devil's advocate debate. And so now we're going to move to uh, five-minute rebuttals. All right, so Ben, we're going to hand it back over to you, and whenever you're ready, I will start the timer. Uh, so as soon as you start, I'll start. Five minutes. Okay, so I think this is really good because I think the two chips, the two main chips that fall in this the does God exist debate, um, there's two really big chips for atheism, and there's two really big chips for theism. So the two chips that I, the theist, have put on the table is the cosmological argument and a teleological argument. And the arguments that Eddie has put on the table are the argument from divine hiddenness and an argument from evil, both being evidential for, we both um, prefer an evidential um, formulation of our arguments. And so really it's going to come down to now of how we weigh the, those chips 
And so I've got to say something about the problems of hiddenness and the problems of evil. So this idea that um, the world seems like it could be better and the idea that God's existence could be more obvious to some people. And these are both very strange um, given what we, the uh, um, attributes that I describe to God in my conception of God. And so I'm going to lay out a theodicy and following Leibniz, I'm going to claim that the actual world is a best possible world and incorporate what's known as a soul building theodicy into that. And so the idea here is, is that um, theism predicts our world is a best possible world. Um, observing a stable order, uh, natural order that actualizes a moral arena um, confirms this hypothesis. Um, but why should we think our world must be a best possible world, given it was created by God? And so I think Immanuel Kant helps us see this um, when he claimed that the world created by God is the best of all possible worlds is clear for the following reason. If a better world than the one willed by God were possible, then a will better than the divine will would also have to be possible. For indisputably that will is better, which chooses what is better. But if a better will is possible, then so is a being who could express this better will. And therefore this being would be more perfect and better than God. But this is a contradiction, for God is the greatest, greatest possible being. So I want to say um, that our world is a best possible world. It could not in any substantively, in substantive sense have been any better. So any facts about hiddenness or evil are accounted for by this. So what could this look like? So John Hick famously argued um, that courage is a very great good and but it implies the great risk of harm now if we add this with some other necessary truths or possible necessary truths about value things like forgiveness is the highest virtue um, and that forgiveness presupposes the possibility of offense and the value of forgiveness is proportionate to the value of the offense if we except evaluative claims like this, um, we can say that our opportunities in the moral arena to act courageously are necessary for our moral growth. And that this moral growth helps us enter into a relationship with God. Um, and I also think that as part of this moral arena, um, that there is this universal afterlife, this idea that where any suffer, uh, suffering that is experienced in this life um, is compensated for and is compensated in a way that is well out of proportion to any suffering experienced in this world. And so that we would have very good reason of that theism would predict something like this. Now, can we extend this soul building theodicy and moral arena to non-human animals? Um, that's a big question. Um, but I don't have a whole lot of time to, unpack that here now, but um, suffice it to say what I would, would I would try to do to try to block the problems of evil and the problem of hit, problems of hiddenness is to say that, look, as part of the moral arena, as part of the datum in my teleological argument, um, is this idea that 
the actual world is a best possible world. And so that it, there is no possible world that could have been better than the one we had of. And so that if there was less evil or the God's uh, existence was more obvious, it wouldn't make the world better. All right. Nice. Okay. Uh, and uh, Eddie, the ball's back in your court and I will reset the time here at five minutes. And whenever you are ready, uh, as soon as you start, I'll start the clock. Five minutes. All righty. Thank you for that, Ben. Um, <clears throat> so remember that Ben is on the affirmative. Um, so whatever responses that I give that raised out about God existing, uh, it's not enough to give possibilities to those. Uh, because, again, I believe it would be committing you know, the fallacy of possibility. Um, or probability, we create a, we create a scenario where it appears that the God of classical theism does not exist, and in response we get well, it's possible this, it's possible that. Um, it borders on you know uh, the the fallacy of ad hocness because the issue with you know, ad hocness is you have a, uh, a certain hypothesis and when difficulties are raised for the hypothesis, uh, you keep creating explanations uh, to save the hypothesis. And we get to a certain point where theists are continuing with uh, repetitive explanations for all of the uh, issues that come up against uh, theism being true. Uh, and with being arguing about such as the cosmological argument that he gave, um, even with the teleological, it seems that th these are much more complex explanations than something like naturalism uh, is true, whether it's, and I'm not advocating for metaphysical naturalism, but uh, naturalism in any sense uh, that we see uh, the way that things operate in nature and to posit a very uh, complex being um, or, or a being this, this complex um, hypothesis to explain these things it just seems far more simpler, you know, to say, hey, you say that this being exists, yet no one can empirically verify it. Not meaning that everything has to be empirically verified that we believe, but there's there's literally no empirical verification. Um, be it, most people that, that are theists are theists because of personal experiences. Well, that's valid for the person, but for everyone else who hasn't had that experience, it's not very valid to us. Um, so I would actually argue, and, and one thing that Ben had stated was, um, I'm not sure if this is what he meant. Maybe he can explain it or clarify it when we have the conversation. Um, he stated that theism has a higher probability Um because the priors would be higher on theism because it's a simpler explanation. 
I would say he could argue that maybe background knowledge could be, but priors, what is the prior probability of theism? Uh, is there a state? Is there uh, a world or a possible world where theism has already happened that we have any epistemic access to? What, what's meant by higher prior probability? I would say maybe one could argue on a base system, uh, background knowledge uh, and evidences and start out with an extremely low prior probability and then argue that even with a very low prior probability, you come out top heavy on theism. But to say that there's higher priors, I, I would most definitely uh, like to um, find out more about that. Uh, did you say one minute left? Right. Okay. Yep. Um, complex universe more likely given theism. I think there's more justification needed for that. We can flesh that one out. Um, I don't know what a best possible world is. It seems like uh, an argument, you know, against Anselm's um, maximally great being, you know, there's a maximally great island. We could always add one more tree, um, things like that. Uh, I would like to know where Ben gets virtues from and what a virtue is under that. Um, and the explanation of moral growth how that would be an interaction with God or a positive. Um, but we can, I'll yield there and uh, we can go further into it. All right now, Mighty Mice Ghost, let's talk about this. <laughs> What's that to talk about, Minnie Mouse? Quipped the Joker, his demented smile spreading broader than ever. You've tried to prove a god, but you can't prove a negative. That's crazier than a man in a bat suit throat batarangs. <laughs> he leaped forward suddenly, closing the distance between them, and fired his pistol at Mighty Mouse from point-blank range. Mighty Mouse winced, and couldn't help but smile as a flag burst from the barrel and unfurled to reveal the word BANG. A bit on the nose, wouldn't you say? He chuckled. What the? Wait a minute. Where did this thing come from? The Joker demanded, frustrated. I haven't used this thing in decades. He held the offending pistol to glare up at the flag angrily. This old gag hasn't worked on bats in a long time. Why would I still have it? He hurled the pistol away to drop between the branches of the world tree and vanish into the chaotic infinity of the abstract plane. Stupid clown! You can't touch me! I'm the mightiest mouse in the multiverse! Mighty Mouse bobbed in the air, his powers of flight fluctuating as he was startled. That was his voice, but he hadn't spoken. Oh, was that right? The Joker pulled another weapon. This one appearing far more dangerous. You think I'm a joke, do you? I'll vaporize you, you varmint. But, but, it wasn't... Your mama was a mole. Mighty Mouse instantly saw red. Now that was uncalled for! He shrilled, levitating higher into the air gathering his power for a lunge powerful enough to knock down a crazed human. 
Nearby, ancient Thales of Malatus shook his head. That wasn't nice, Rodotosk, he grumbled. You could have derailed the whole show. Come on, old man. You know you loved it. The innocent-looking squirrel giggled. If it didn't ruin your show, I improved it. Before they were just playing around, and now they're all in. You're welcome. Meh, said the old Malaysian. He shook his head again, keeping his eyes on the combatants. Where are you off to now, Radicost? To fulfill my destiny, Thales. To fulfill my destiny. Why don't I like the sound of that? Probably because I'm on my way to talk to the Nighthawk. Bye, Thales. Thales' eyes widened in alarm, and he spun around to confront the squirrel, only to find an empty branch. Radicost. Messenger service and troublemaker of the world tree was gone. Thales turned his gaze back to Joker and Mighty Mouse, fulfilling his role in the situation. His eyes were filled with worry, though. Please don't piss off the dragon, you dumb squirrel, he murmured as the battle continued. So we are going to now move into... Uh, that's right, so we're still going to be in the Devil's, devil's Advocate mode. Uh, but we're going to do an open discussion, and we will put that at uh, 15 minutes. And so however you gentlemen would like to uh, start that out. Um, I'll start it off where okay. we just left off. Perfect. Uh, so I will start the timer 15 minutes as soon as you uh, take it away, Ben. Okay, so picking up on some of the things that Eddie just said in response, um to my arguments in the Odyssey um, was the idea I claimed that the prior probability of theism um, was lower than that of any rival hypothesis. And so this is a very crucial um, aspect of my higher. argument. I think you meant higher than any other hypothesis. You said lower. Uh, Yes, uh, thank you for, yeah. for pointing out um, that theism had a higher prior probability than any other competing hypothesis. Thank you so much. Um, and this is so the reason that I give for the justification for this is that um, theism's brute fact, so all views are going to have some form of brute fact, but theism is going to have one brute fact. And it's that the, it's the existence of a personal being um, with two properties, knowledge and power. Um, held in the simplest way possible, zero limitations. So they're unlimited. God's power and knowledge are unsurpassable. And because he's omniscient, he has knowledge of all of the re moral reason-given facts. So he always knows what is all things considered the best thing to do. And because he's omnipotent, knows all the moral reason-given facts, he never acts irrationally. He's never motivated um, to act irrationally in any way. So I think it follows from this that when when Eddie asks, what is a best possible world? The theist here is going to say the actual world. That's a best possible world. The actual world and all of its features, both natural and supernatural, is a best possible world. And so that, that might include heaven, but it also means that best possible worlds include intense animal suffering. And... Um, well, non-resistant non-believers yeah let's take that one point before we go on um yeah so that's my question to you is um that's the argument for a, a high prior probability for theism do you think that there is a competing hypothesis 
that has a higher prior probability than theism? That's my question. Yeah, I, and it I took could, me a while to get it out. Sorry <laughs> well, I mean, I could just say that um, the world as we experience it um, is a brute fact itself. That's a simple. In fact, I would say it's more simple because you're going a step further and adding a being behind this world. And I think it would be far more simpler to just say that it is a brute fact that the world that we experience and interact in uh, exists and exists in the way that it does. Gotcha. So um, do you, on the view that you're putting forward, it, how many um, brute facts are there? Are there are a bunch of fruit, brute facts. Um, because again, the, the, the claim that I want to make is that theism has one brute fact, the exi- that there is a God, that we cannot give a causal explanation of it. We have to, and so um, we cannot give a satisfactorily, satisfactorily causal explanation of the universe. And so we're going to have to invoke what's called a personal explanation. And so that this personal explanation is going to be very, very simple. Whereas it seems like your model will be more complex because it will have to posit a whole lot of other brute facts. There are a certain set of natural laws rather than some other set of natural laws. And they'll be within certain parameters rather than other parameters. And that these will just all be brute facts. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, uh, well, I would disagree. Um, and the reason I would disagree is because whatever, so you could posit that, uh, a God exists to explain, um, the world that we live in is the best possible world. Well, when we look at, uh, the laws of nature and things like that, you know, I could ask, well, why, um, why do they exist in the way they do? Well, the appeal would be that because God exists and what I'm saying is everything as a whole, all of reality as a whole is just a brute fact, a brute fact. All of these facts that are within this reality uh, aren't necessarily brute facts on their own. It's a brute fact that the world. So if one was going to take like, for example, I think this will help illuminate what I'm saying. Um, let's take like a, con- a contingency argument. Um, you know, uh, the theist would say that um, uh, contingent things exist, and in order to account for these contingent things, there's a necessary something. Well, the best explanation for the contingent things that exist is it's a brute fact. It's a brute contingency. These things exist. So that's what I'm saying. I don't think all of these things need any kind of metaphysical grounding or, or you know, some kind of explanation for why, uh, you know, the laws of nature are the way they are, not some other way. I don't even know what that means without having, you know, why, without having some kind of set to choose from or think about or something like that. I mean, it, it is the fact that the laws are the way that they are. Uh, and to say that we need some, you know, explanation for why they're not a different way uh, doesn't really seem to make any sense to me, just positing, you know, a God that, that he could make them differently gotcha so my question took us about halfway through the 15 minutes so you asked me a question now and then we'll use up the rest of that 15 minutes Uh, yes um uh, man i which one we got so far on that um 
I had a very good one. It was, I mean, it was just going to destroy. Take your time. Take your time. We can all, we can edit all the, you know, this part. It was going to destroy everything you said. And, uh, no, that's, uh, uh, oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So, talking about best possible world. All right. I asked you, what is a best, I don't even know what a best possible world is. And you said that it would be the uh, actual world. And the actual world exists as the best possible world because this is the world that God actualized. How is that not begging the question? How are you not assuming that this is the best possible world because you're assuming God created this world. So if God created this world in the way that it is, it would be the best possible world because God created this world. How do you avoid begging the question? Yeah. So that's what's built into the hypothesis is what's the the traditional view of creation. And that um, what I'm putting on the table offering theism is a non-causal explanation, but a personal explanation. The idea that the uh, universe was exist came into being because of God's choice. He chose to do it. So this isn't begging the question for the reason that I cited Kant for. So it's this idea that um, if God has unlimited power, his power is unlimited, it's unsurpassable. And his goodness is also unsurpassable. And if he were to build any sort of creation, if he were to bring actualize any world, um, a perfect creator couldn't create anything less than a perfect world because where would imperfection came from? If there's perfection prior to creation, after creation, what can there only be other than the perfection that's been created by perfection? And so that by hypothesis, that if there is this, if there is something, a complex universe rather than nothing, which is my com- my cosmological argument, um, argues, we can then move to the teleological argument and, and ask, what sort of order are we going to find? Well, we're going to find the order of a best possible world, and best possible worlds feature moral arenas. So all of this is independently motivated. I'm not just assuming um, anything um, that also entails that God exists. I'm arguing for it. It's part of, it's part of the argument itself. Okay. So, okay. Okay. I think I see what you're saying. So what you're saying is um, if this God existed and the, the attributes that this God would have, um, it would be a better explanation for what we experience in the world, uh, given these attributes and things. You're not saying that it would be a contradiction if there was a will that could create a greater world than this one that because we already said that God is by definition, the greatest possible being. So there can't be this will that create could create a greater possible world. There just must not be any greater possible. This, the actual world must, there might be a range, a set of best possible worlds. The actual world has to be part of them. If, if God created them is that's my claim. And that this is an a priori claim. This is part of our background knowledge. This is just a matter of logic. Okay. On that note, um, could God not have created the world with, um, let's say 
5% less suffering. I don't think so. I think because at that point it wouldn't be a best possible world, but God could have created nothing at all, in which case only God would exist. And that's obviously a best possible world because it contains a greatest possible being. Um, so God was free to create nothing. But I think that if he was to create something other than nothing, he would have to create a best possible world and a best possible world features a complex universe with natural laws ordered in such a way as to give rise to a moral arena. Okay. Um, I'm going to let, let you uh, ask a question. I, I just didn't want to get too far off of this topic. And I had one more for you on this topic and then I'll let you uh, go ahead and ask it. Okay. Yeah. Well, how do you deal with uh, arbitrariness such as um, Peter Van Inwagen? He argues that um, uh, God has no obligation to, if God um, couldn't prevent gratuitous evils, he has no obligation to, and he boils it down to arbitrariness that if there was one less person that suffered or two less people, there's always going to be an arbitrary cutoff. Whoops. Yeah, so Van Wagen is making some assumptions there that I wouldn't follow him in. And so I would say that there are no gratuitous evils. And so that, that this world, all of the evils that we observe are logically necessary for um, a best possible world. And I would claim that God does have obligations to us. He's obligated to create us in a best possible world and that he has a moral duty to do that. And that if he didn't do that, there's a will, a possible will that could do it, which would be greater which would contradict the concept of a greatest possible being. So I, uh, the my claim that the actual world is a best possible world entails there are no gratuitous evils. So when Van and Wagen, um, what gets to the point of arbitrariness where he's like, you know, at what point do we draw the line? There is no line to be drawn. There are no unjustified evils. Every evil is is justified on my model. That seems to pose the. Another problem, actually, I think is probably actually a bigger problem, and that is, um, so what you're saying is all evils or perceived evils that happen, uh, God has a, it's actually part of a greater good, because... Yeah, so the bullet I have to bite is that all of the apparently gratuitous evils that we observe are just that, apparently gratuitous. They are actually not gratuitous. So that's just a bullet my view has to bite. Right, but but here's the issue. On this view, there's really no such thing as evil. Because how can it be called evil if there's a greater good? I mean, it may seem evil to us, but that doesn't mean that means that evil really yeah, doesn't so exist. It, it doesn't, I'm not claiming that evil does not, obtain at all all i'm saying is that is that every act that god performs is justified and every evil that god allows has some justification and so every evil we observe is logically connected um in the right ways to some other justifying good god could not have brought around this other feature of a best possible world without logically having whatever evil it is that we're observing. And so every evil on that view is justified. There are no, you know, the 
appearance of gratuitous evil on my model is an illusion. It does not actually, in actuality, in fact, on my model, everything is justified because it's logically connected in the right ways to some other greater good, some other feature of a best possible world that God just could not bring it about. But, you know, that includes, you know, Bambi burning to death in a forest fire. That includes children suffering with bone cancer. This includes Alzheimer's disease that affects the elderly, tsunamis, the Lisbon earthquake. All of these things are logically necessary. Like these are necessary features of best possible worlds. I see uh, you're a William Rowe guy too um, with the Bambi. <laughs> that's actually what I was thinking about earlier when I was talking about the forest fire. I know that's kind of feature. I know you're a Schellenberg guy too. So, um, but here's the problem I have. Yeah, I, I don't mean to dominate this. I'll give you as much time as you want afterwards. I just. Oh, you're good. You're this, good. Yeah, this one area. It, it seems you can't make any normative claims about evil. It seems like there really is no evil because God can't do evil. And if he allow, allows things to happen, whether it's gratuitous or not, it seems, I mean, I think we would all agree that there's evil things that happen. It doesn't necessarily have to be gratuitous, but we can't even make normative claims about evil because if God allows it and it's a greater good, then really it's a good. It's not an evil. How do we avoid? Well, but the, well the greater good is the moral arena itself. So with my theological argument presupposes, recall that courage is a very great good, um, but that courage also presupposes the risk of harm um, and that things like forgiveness are of the highest virtue. You know, these have the highest normative value and that we are more moral agents using free will in whatever sense, compatibilist or incompatibilist sense, to make morally significant decisions in a moral theater so that we can grow um, in our characters and that this character growth um, is beneficial for our relationship with God. It, it prepares us for a relationship with God. And so in my view, my, uh, as part of a datum, what I'm taking as my observation is that we have moral knowledge, um, that we have moral agency, that we can make claims um, about the world and act courageously um, in response. So if, if you're of the impression that what happens to you is what matters morally, um, then my, my model is not going to have a whole lot of plausibility. But if you think that what, what happens in the, how you respond to what happens in the world, including non-human animals, how things respond to what happens in the world, if you think that's what matters morally, and that that's a feature of the best possible world. I think that's where my theodicy will have its most plausible, the most plausibility. I'm going to jump in here real fast. Uh, so the 15 minutes is up, but we have some great discussion going on here. All right. So uh, that was a great discussion. And we're now going to move over to our reflection period. So rather than doing closings, we're going to uh, go out of devil's advocate mode back into the normal mode and just, uh, have a discussion about 15 minutes, but we can go however long you guys want. Um, and and um, you guys can uh, reflect on how things went. So whenever you guys are ready and whoever oh. wants to start. So okay. So this the, is, it's going to be an open discussion. I thought we were going to do like. Is, yeah, open discussion. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. I was, I thought it was like, 
uh, you know, leaving you with the thought of the day kind of thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, all so right, cool. I, the, the part of my opening that is still very much true to my actual beliefs as an atheist philosopher of religion um, is that this disagreement comes to down to two arguments on each side. So I think that the best... The two best um, weapons in the theist's arsenal, so to speak, um, are the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. And I think that Eddie is right to press um, the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness, because I think they're the bear. They're they're what block the teleological and the cosmological argument. And so I think we got that much right in the sense that we're using the two best arguments on each side. Um, and I think that the cosmological argument, the teleological argument that I put forward um, are undercut significantly by considerations that Eddie mentioned having to do, especially with things like horrendous evils um, and non-human animal pain. It's really hard to um, account and non-resistant non-belief, like a, a loving God who wants to have a relationship with, you know, the epistemic distance that he puts from some people very difficult to understand how um and i have to bite the bullet on the actual world being a best possible world um this is what's often called panglossian from candide's voltaire or voltaire's candide um and it's the idea that that look that's just an overly optimistic view of the world it's just not believable that the lisbon earthquake is a feature of best possible worlds and so that's just a it's just an impalpable bullet that my theistic model has to bite, but I think we have to. It's uh, more palpable than the skeptical theist route. I've talked a lot. Uh, I want to hear some of Eddie's thoughts. Yeah. I, so first of all, um, uh, you know, Ben, you and I, we many years together, discussions and things, and, and I, even though you're huge asshole in the beginning i'm pretty sure i was too uh we've kind of come around full circle to uh, i have a ton of respect for you so uh, for you to you know say uh the two best arguments um were the ones i presented uh to me that's uh you know a feather in the cap uh and and that kind of you know that, that kind of makes me feel a little better but the reason is because those are the two arguments i struggle with personally as a theist the evidential argument from uh, evil and suffering and divine hiddenness. Um, I personally think, you know, the response to divine hiddenness, a better response, just in my opinion, is, um, you know, it kind of goes into, if we have this place called heaven, uh, you know, and what's typically called the afterlife, um, if God is the omnibenevolent, uh, maximally powerful being, speaking in terms of, you know, um, uh, scientific terms, if he's this energy, you know, that, that even, you know, in scripture it says that no man can stand in God's full glory and live. If he is the ultimate source of good and he is the ultimate uh, uh, omnis of everything. Well, being that close to God in heaven, though we would have free will to sin, we won't desire it. 
because we're just that close to the source of goodness. And to me, it seems to make more sense that if God was too obvious, then we really wouldn't have a choice in choosing to believe in God and follow God uh, because he's just that powerful. He has to kind of stay hidden, you know, so that we, we actually have a true choice. Um, the problem of evil I, I don't have a good answer for, honestly. Uh, I think I think being hit the best would be a soul-building theodicy, um, some kind of theodicy or soul-building theodicy. I, I think it does make sense that, you know, it, we define good in terms of bad, great in terms of horrible. Um, it's kind of this spectrum. And it seems like if everything was just one thing all the time well there's really not anything there but what's normal there's not these swings that makes us appreciate more love more care more um you know and things like that so i can see how these some things are necessary to really appreciate what good is what happy is what you know uh, i think anybody everybody here has experienced some kind of loss and we would say, you know, that, you know, that perfect sunny and 75 day and, you know, with a gentle breeze is awesome compared to the day that we were sitting at a funeral, how horrible it was. I mean, it's there's this, this huge um, spectrum there. And I think that's we define that uh, in terms of each other. So I think in that kind of way, it is necessary. I think it's part of uh, soul building as in character building, as in perseverance. Um, but I don't have an answer for the mentally ill, uh, the amount of infants, uh, fetuses, um, young people. What what purpose does their life serve if, if they didn't experience these things for, you know, this character building or soul building that was needed? I And I think there's probably far more infants throughout time that have, you know, uh, past than humans that have lived. Uh, so on a balance, it's like, how does, how does this work? You know, if they're going to go to heaven, then where's the soul building needed for them? Why do all of us have to have soul building and they don't, you know, they, are they not going to appreciate it as much as we do? I mean, I, there's so many different, you know, issues there. Um, and these are things that I struggle with personally. And that's why I, I tell people all the time, you know, atheists, you know, that the, the newer atheists that I run into, it's like, bro, forget all this other stuff, man. You want to go to divine hiddenness and the evidential problem of evil. It's the most powerful. Most, I think most honest theists would agree. Uh, we've had tremendous suffering in uh, my family. We've had tragedy after tragedy. And I can tell you now, I'm still just dumbfounded at why these things had to happen. Yeah, I can say, sure, the smaller things that bothered me at a certain time don't bother me now because of the bigger things that I've had. But the trade-off between the two, oh, wow, where's the value there? I would much rather have my loved one you know, with me or something like that. Um, but I'll just wrap it up with that. I, I think that uh, Ben brought very good arguments me personally i'm um uh cosmological arguments kind of guy uh i i prefer i think that the uh, 
modal contingency argument, uh, fine tuning, um, you know, uh, and the argument of conscious uh, from consciousness. To me, those are uh, the stronger arguments for theism. But um, I don't disagree with uh, uh, Ben's arguments. I think he did a fantastic job of presenting both of them. And he used Bayes. I'm, I'm a Bayesian epistemologist. I he, I was like over here fanboying when he broke out the Bayes. <laughs> All right. Do we want to end there? That gives him the last word. And that takes us about 15 minutes, right? Yeah, so we are at about uh, – actually, we've got about six and a half minutes left. If Oh, we if do? Wanna, oh, wow. If you want to say anything, yep. Okay, so – um, I'll go ahead and say something about um, atheists struggling with the best arguments um, on the theist side in the cosmological and teleological argument. So I think a lot of, uh, Eddie was saying how a lot of theists struggle with the problem of evil and the problem of hiddenness. Um, and atheists, I don't think, take seriously enough the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And that why that question is so profound and raises deep mysteries um, about the universe as a whole, about the actual world as a whole. And so I think that's definitely where my camp is lacking is that they, they can just dismiss the cosmological argument as this kind of naive way of thinking about the world when in reality it's not, especially, you know, Swinburne, the inductive one I gave um, starts from premises that everyone can accept that God, you know, theism means this, and that God means this, and that we observe a complex universe, and so that it uses it, it. You know, it takes those tools and fashions an argument, and says whether or not it's a good C inductive argument or P inductive argument. And um, the other one is the design argument, and I cut people in my own camp a little bit more slack on the teleological argument. Because the Telia argument really took a huge hit with Darwin. Um, there's just really no way around that. There was good responses to the teleological uh, argument given by Hume in his dialogues. Um, very good arguments, very powerful um, arguments against that conclusion. But you didn't have a satisfying alternative explanation of complex order like the human eye until Darwin came around. That's just a huge blow. Um, I think to the teleological argument. And so I think it's been rightly seen as something that um, has fallen out of fashion. Um, but I think that not taking the fine tuning argument seriously is a misstep of people in my camp. Um, I don't think the fine tuning argument works. You'll notice that I didn't give any fine tuning data tonight in my argument because I don't think it actually favors um, either view. Um, what I think is the more interesting piece of order, uh, because even if you concede that God cares about the cosmological, the value of the cosmological, uh, the value of the cosmological constant, you're not getting any moral properties out of this. So what I think is the much better argument from order is the idea that the natural laws that we do observe give rise to a moral arena. Now, if you want to say that a moral arena is super unlikely on naturalism because natural single universe naturalism and the fine tuned data imply that what we observe is super, 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 super unlikely. Okay. 
that's one way of incorporating the fine data, fine tuning data into my argument. But what I don't think atheists take nearly as serious is the fact that we find ourselves making morally significant decisions and that that is surprising given naturalism. Naturalism didn't have to give rise to a moral arena. And that this fact seems to be something more than just a byproduct of biological evolution. So there's a story that has to be told. We have to somehow understand how a moral arena it would be selected for. Why would natural selection select a mindless chance process select for something like a moral arena? We don't have a story for that. So again, we're left kind of in the point with Hume prior to Darwin. We have really good design arguments for local, certain local argument design arguments and certain cosmic design arguments, and they need to be engaged with more. And I think one step in engaging with them better is understanding them better, understanding what they are claiming, what they're trying to establish, and how they interact, how they clash with the arguments from evil and the arguments from hiddenness. So again, again, at the end of the day, I think that's where the real battlefield, uh, the real battle is happening between those two arguments on each side, and the war will be won on who's left standing, the um, religious skeptics, evil and hiddenness, or the natural theologians, appeal to something rather than nothing and order in the world. Yeah. And I, I agree. The, um, I, I most definitely find the, uh, very, very, uh, fascinating and, um, thought provoking to me is the, why is there something rather, rather than nothing? It's, that is one that, keeps me wondering, you know, um, about our existence. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, highly disagree with you about the uh, fine-tuning argument. I personally think it's uh, pretty strong. Um, I know a lot of people would invoke the hostility of the universe, but I think that actually uh, points more towards the specialness of at least carbon life um you know the when one actually evaluates all of the cosmological constants and uh you know it, it just it, it just seems i mean they even use the term you know fine-tuning um which is you know a lot of uh scientists um that's one part of the reason you know the uh multiverse hypothesis is uh, put forward and the, uh, oh, what was it? Um, there was one other thing. Um, totally drawn a blank now. Oh, teleology. I think, it, and I'm just going to say, uh, being is a very high level, uh, very, very, technical on uh, this aspect and for those who when we're talking about teleology we're not talking about intelligent design necessarily teleology is actually used in biology and different sciences there's a directedness a pointedness there's things have a like a loss of light <laughs> uh things have a a, a, a basically um a, 
directed an ultimate purpose. There's, and it doesn't mean purpose because of a designer necessarily. It just means it's directed towards an ends or a means or something like that. And I think teleology, uh, agreeing with Ben that that teleology is um, very important. And in fact, I, uh, they've had, um, I have a friend who's actually doing a uh, thesis on the avoidance of the term teleology and philosophy of biology because of people thinking that the implications is theism when really it's not. That's not exactly how teleology pans out. I agree on the morals part too. You know, the um, is ought gap. How do we get to from how things are to what we ought to do? Uh, there seems to be, I'm very, I'm a lot more skeptical these days of, moral realism in a sense um i'm kind of reworking my ideas on on morality on that but i think ultimately you know if we have more progress there seems to be something that it's progressing to um i avoid moral arguments a lot of times because they just there's so many different ways today we can you know go with it anti-realism is uh, put a huge damper in a lot of the strong points of moral realism for a long time. But other than that, um, yeah, I, I, again, I, you know, I agree a lot with, uh, Ben's take on it. Um, I think I would like to flesh out, um, a little more later on, um, the epistemic side of, um, uh, divine hiddenness. You know, I, I think that, uh, like I said earlier, I, I think there's a huge epistemic component to it, though it's not, I mean, it's more of an uh, epistemic argument. I don't know. Is it more epistemic argument from the problem of evil? Which would you say, Ben, is more of an epistemic issue? The problem of hiddenness. Okay. So the, the, the problem of hiddenness is God's not as obvious as it could be. Right, right. With knowledge. Um, and whereas the problem of evil is saying, look, the world could have been better. And that's surprising, given that God is an unsurpassably good creator who couldn't create anything less than a good, you know. I thought that's what you said. I, I didn't want to, uh, I had it mixed up. I couldn't remember which one, um, you were, uh, yeah. talking. <laughs> so. Well, I was I was trying to pull my punches a little bit um, tonight because I didn't want to like pull out the big gloves and be like, you know, behold, the atheist's <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side there are three ridges. I could have gone that route, but I didn't go that route. Well, I, I was thinking of going, you know, um, most philosophers are atheists, Um so because most <laughs> philosophers are atheists, then that should be you know, the strong position. On. <laughs> I really, a part of me really did want like to just set when I was segueing into my teleological argument, just be like, there's order in the universe. Behold. <laughs> there's a design. So there must be a design. Yeah. And just go through the whole spiel. Yeah. But I was like, no, no, I can't do it. Cause that's not question. Be thing, yeah. It'll be a fun <laughs> thing to do at the end. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I do have to go to bed. It's, yes. I've got, <laughs> I got to be asleep in like the next 15 minutes. Yeah. Also, well, yeah, thank you for, for sticking well, with you. us and, and getting yes, it going. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for doing with this me. I had a lot of fun. I hope 
it was helpful for everyone on all sides. Many nearby branches and boughs had been grazed, penetrated, or blown clean off. The Joker was a loose cannon who held a loose cannon in his hands. Splinters and levers were sent spinning in all directions as, time and time again, Just mister you, varmin. Go back here and get some. He missed again. One word came back to M.M. out of the haze in a chipper, good-natured tone. Sure, why not? Joker released all of his frustrations as he emptied the clip into the direction of the voice, all to no avail. As the last bullets flew from the barrel, Mighty Mouse came streaking in to kick the barrel up into his face. The Joker went tumbling over backwards, but Mighty Mouse underestimated him again as a shoe bigger than his whole body came up from below to punt him into the air. However, of all those present in this bizarre place, Mighty Mouse alone possessed the power of flight. This meant that no matter what damage he occurred to the tree, he had nothing to worry about. Mighty Mouse was forced to revisit that assessment moments after he made it, as an air-splitting crack from far below accompanied by the tremendous jolt that could be felt all along the body of the tree announced in no uncertain terms that something had gone terribly wrong with the tree. Hovering over one of the gaps between the branches, he peered down to see a gargantuan beast tearing itself free from the roots. Wood snapped and splinters as big as average-sized trees were flung in all directions as a massive form heaved itself free from its prison beneath the roots. Joker discarded his weapon accidentally as he struggled to keep his footing and blew a hole into the central trunk. What are you doing? screamed Thales. The ancient mathematician's calm, passive demeanor had evaporated into stark terror. That fool of a squirrel has finally done it. He's enraged a dragon and killed us all. And you would shoot it at us all and what? Kill us all that much more dead? He pointed accusingly at the Joker and then was forced to wrap his arms around a nearby twig in order to keep his balance. The abstract plane itself shifted and swirled, reconfiguring itself as the world tree swayed perilously. Mighty Mouse alone remained mostly unaffected with his power of flight at first. In fact, he remained still while Edisel moved, which created a whole new set of problems for him. He was struck by a shaking branch and sent tumbling as the air-splitting screams of an angry bird of prey came from above to answer the dragon's roars from below. Behold the wise one, a bird so old not even the bards can remember his name, Thales cried out, staring up in wonder from where he held on for dear life. Ages have passed since he and Nidhogg the dragon have seen each other's faces, but the grudge between them is as deep as ever. They will fight and destroy the world tree. What have you done, you foolish squirrel? Are you more insane than the Joker? No one is more insane than me, cried the Joker. Don't believe me? Just watch and keep scholar, old man. 
I'm going to prove that naked mole rat wrong once and for all. And with that, he leaped headlong from the branch and into the void. Mighty Mouse had just gotten his bearings and started dodging branches when a very real bullet blew one off the tree at a perfect angle to make it strike him. Seconds later, he was struck by a gloved fist bigger than his whole body and sent crashing into another branch. Joker landed near Mighty Mouse, and the two stood to face each other one final time, disregarding the two enraged titans racing towards them from above and below. Enough! Talos bellowed, producing a curious device from beneath his robes and flipping a switch. A high-pitched whine came from the machine as a new portal opened nearby. I'm too old for all this craziness. I must return to Militissing before it gives me a heart attack. He raised his voice to address unseen spectators. Before I go, people of YouTube, I ask, who defended his position better? I ended up um, years ago in a bunch of different philosophy groups on Facebook before I even knew what the hell philosophy was. And several several of them Ben was in, and he was a new atheist, and he was just an asshole. I mean, <laughs> him and I went at it all the time. I, even being a newbie in philosophy, some of the things that he was – and I'm sure I'm, I said plenty of dumb shit myself, but – just some of the things he was arguing, you know, I'm like, what? That, that doesn't make any sense, you know, before I even knew what a damn syllogism was or anything like that. But I've watched him. So we've kind of narrowed it down to uh, mainly um, reason and religion uh, on Facebook. And, and Ryan's real active there, too. Um, uh, but watching him grow and progress from the angry anti-theist that he was to, you know, uh, his humility, his knowledge, his charitability. Now it just, it's phenomenal. I mean, I, I love talking with it. Hell, he helped me prepare for a debate like a year and a half ago on morality. Um, and he's just, that's ethics. That's his, that's why I said I'm not going to debate with Ben on ethics because it's just <laughs> that dude. That is his stuff. But um, and I finally got to meet him in person um, at uh, Cameron or, or Bertuzzi or, or Capturing Christianity conference, and and he's a genuinely cool ass dude. He's absolutely he is exactly what he you know appears to be you know online and stuff. So I have all the respect in the world for him, and I love the shit out of Ben. <laughs> Friendship. The Joker wins. Flawless victory.